PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Neurologists and lots of other clinicians really don't know what to tell patients with MS to do relative to exercise and physical activity. So I surveyed four neurologists in the Boston area, all from MS clinics, and it's interesting, only two of them said that they regularly suggest exercise. You just can't ignore the data any longer relative to the benefits of exercise in persons with MS. Tomorrow I can go in and start applying these principles of how to teach self-efficacy. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Multiple Sclerosis, Physical Activity, and Self-Efficacy. A recent study published in PTJ found that, in persons with relapsing-remitting MS, the primary predictor of change in physical activity was change in self-efficacy. To discuss the impact of this finding, we have the study's lead author, Dr. Robert Model, and clinical expert Dr. Anne McCarthy-Jacobson. And now, our moderator, PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Kathy Gilbody. Hello, and welcome to this podcast, which will focus on discussing a recently published article entitled Longitudinal Change in Physical Activity and Its Correlates in Relapsing-Remitting Multiple Sclerosis. In this study, changes in physical activity and changes in a number of other factors were examined longitudinally over two-and-a-half-year time frame, providing some new insights into some factors associated with the decline in physical activity often seen in people with multiple sclerosis. I'm delighted that two colleagues are able to join me in this discussion. First, the lead author on this article, Dr. Robert Model, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health, an affiliate in the Division of Neuroscience, and chair of the Biomedical and Health Sciences IRB, all at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Also with us is Dr. Anne McCarthy-Jacobson, Clinical Assistant Professor in the Graduate Programs in Physical Therapy at the MGH Institute of Health Professions and Clinical Expert Physical Therapist at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, both in Boston. Hi, Anne, and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. It's one of my favorite populations to work with. Now, just to start us off, I thought that this article brought forward some really interesting considerations that directly impact clinical practice in terms of providing a better understanding of some of the factors which may be influencing physical activity in people with multiple sclerosis. I'd like to start our discussion today by asking Rob to give us a brief overview of the study and a little insight explanation into what led he and his co-investigators to study physical activity in this population. Thanks. So what we did in this study is we recruited a large number of individuals who were residing in the Midwest of the United States, nearly 300 of them, and they all had the same type of MS, that is relapsing remitting MS, where the disease is sometimes active and sometimes quiet and function gets worse and it gets better. 
And we enrolled these people into this two-and-a-half-year study where we had them complete measures of their symptomology, such as fatigue, depression, anxiety, and pain. We had them complete measures relative to their walking ability and their neurological functioning. We also had them wear an accelerometer around their waist to measure objectively their free living physical activity. And then we had them complete some questionnaires telling us about their physical activity behavior. And these materials were completed every six months across a two and a half year period of time. The reason that we got into this area is that we started by looking at the literature And what we noticed is that persons with MS were sedentary and inactive as a group. That doesn't mean everybody is inactive and sedentary, but overall persons with MS were sedentary and inactive compared with the general population. So we put on our behavioral scientist caps and decided, well, we need to begin to understand what variables are explaining this inactivity and the occurrence of inactivity as it develops over time so we can begin to target those variables and interventions to try to reduce barriers and promote facilitators of lifelong physical activity habits in this population so that these individuals could experience the many benefits of physical activity and exercise in the context of living with this chronic disease. You make a great point in your introduction of your article, Rob, that many of the prior studies that have been done looking at physical activity and related factors in this population were cross-sectional, and that this is one of a few longitudinal studies. And I understand one of the bottom lines is that although fatigue, depression, pain, what we think about as the subjective symptoms that many individuals with MS present to us with, Although those factors might be associated with physical activity in the cross-sectional studies, the results of your study suggest that targeting interventions at those things may be less effective at changing physical activity than targeting interventions at self-efficacy. Would you guys agree with that statement? I perfectly agree with that statement. And I think that we probably missed a golden opportunity to explain a few things. And one is that most of the research has been cross-sectional And this is one of the few longitudinal studies that tracks people with MS over a long period of time with objective state-of-the-art accelerometer technology to quantify the change in physical activity over time. And so we're the first study that's actually shown that if you take a stable disease population that's had the disease for a while, they still continue to decrease their physical activity over time. And so we thought... These people were minimally impaired as well. Would you agree? Right. And, okay, go ahead. And so, yeah, these are people who had the disease for a while, relatively stable and under control, and they had relatively minimal disability. We're showing that their physical activity is decreasing over time. And so that's alarming. We already have a sample of individuals who is inactive to begin with. And so then you start to think, okay, well, symptoms are one of the primary hallmark features of MS. And all of our cross-sectional data were suggesting that these symptoms are really important for understanding physical activity behavior and levels. And I think that from a single snapshot point in time perspective, individuals who have more fatigue, depression, pain are less likely to be physically active. I don't argue with that in the data. I think that's true. But what's unique here is that these symptoms are not worsening over time 
and they're not factors that are driving physical activity behavior to be reduced over time. The factor that's reduced over time from a personal level is self-efficacy, their confidence and their ability to be physically active, and that's what seems to be driving the reduction in physical activity over time. So essentially, that's the variable we have to target. So does that mean, do you think, that we don't address fatigue, depression, and pain? Oh, no, no, no. I think we still have to manage those things because I think that they, for a number of reasons, are still important factors. They're very important for quality of life. They're really important for maintaining long-term employment, for maintaining independence and things along those lines. It's just they don't seem to be as important for understanding long-term physical activity patterns. Great. Anne, would you like to ask a question? Absolutely. This concept of self-efficacy, I think, is a newer one for a lot of clinicians. And in this population, I really struggle with our short lengths of stay on inpatient, our difficulty getting these clients into outpatient and their physical therapy covered because it's considered a chronic disease. And so how can we motivate these patients or teach the concept of self-efficacy knowing that we may not be the ones who are doing the exercise with them. So taking how we know that exercising for neuroprotection has a role in MS, how do we do that with our current healthcare environment is, I guess, one of those things I struggle with as a clinician as well as an educator and educating my students as how to reach these people. Yeah, I think first of all, it's important to talk about self-efficacy. So when we talk about self-efficacy, we're talking about one's specific beliefs in their abilities or capabilities to undertake a specific course of action over time. So, for example, someone's self-efficacy for engaging in 20 or 30 minutes of physical activity five days per week over the next six months. And theoretically, and there's a lot of research to now back this up, Bandura, who developed social cognitive theory and this idea of self-efficacy, has really taught us a lot about approaches or factors that we can target to help someone become more self-efficacious. And what he showed us is that the first thing you need to do is teach people how to understand when they're successful. That essentially, if you start engaging in a behavior and you can see that you're successful at that change... Well, that should lead you directly to being more confident that you can do that consistently over time. So the idea is that success builds confidence, which builds further behavior. And that's probably the most important thing that we can teach people to focus on accomplishment and success. And then also vicarious experience. That is helping people see that there's someone just like them who has the same disease, who has to manage the same consequences of the disease in the context of their life, but they're able to be physically active, engage, and exercise. And so theoretically, Bandura has taught us a lot. Now, pragmatically, how do you do that in a very short inpatient visit is really a challenging consideration and something that I think researchers haven't thought a lot about. Right. Thank you for that. And I think that in addition, I would like to find some way, not just with clinicians, but I've been in some neurologist's office in the past year attending appointments with people who are being worked up for a diagnosis of MS. And I had the ability to ask them what they do about education about MS because I was curious. So I surveyed four neurologists in the Boston area 
all from MS clinics. And it's interesting, only two of them said that they regularly suggest exercise. One was the only one who said he actually gives literature about the element of neuroprotection and exercise and MS and the benefits of physical activity. And then I asked, well, do you give them resources for how to get started with an exercise program? You have an interdisciplinary clinic. Are there physical therapists here? And none of them do. But they all were very interested in having a physical therapist in their clinic and asked what our profession could do. I found that they mostly thought of us as treating disability and maybe addressing, you know, wheelchair needs and assistive equipment needs for this population, which is important. But that's not the only thing. I think the element of wellness and health promotion in this population is not addressed very well at that level. So I think this is going to be a critical role for us as a profession to really team up with these neurologists. And I've been working with a team of researchers up in Canada over the last couple of years, and we've started working together based on this recognized problem that neurologists and lots of other clinicians really don't know what to tell patients with MS to do relative to exercise and physical activity. So in the past few years, what we did is we entered into the systematic process where we did a literature review that followed systematic guidelines to come up with the evidence base for what are the benefits of exercise training in persons with MS. And then from that, we developed exercise prescription guidelines. And those two papers have been published and the guidelines have been released from the Canadian MS Society that all neurologists, all clinicians worldwide can utilize those now to prescribe exercise and physical activity. And the one last thing that we're doing right now is we're developing a toolbox, a way of putting these into place that can be disseminated worldwide for all clinicians, whether it's a neurologist, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or a nurse, for example, as well. They could get access to this toolbox and it will help them to communicate with their patients better. So it's a real big issue. And I think that in the next year, there's going to be a lot of resources out there to help people working with individuals who have MS, help them to understand how to engage in exercise and what to do. So it's a very exciting time. Well, that's very encouraging. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, well, Rob, I'll really be interested in getting those references from you. I wanted to just sort of ask a follow-up question to Anne. So, Rob, you did a great job kind of summarizing some of the work that's available about self-efficacy. So, Anne, to go back to your question about in the acute rehab environment, mm-hmm. you know, do you think it's feasible for clinicians to actually use some of the things Rob mentioned in the clinical practice environment, teaching when successful, verbal persuasion, reinterpreting some of the physical and affective, um, some subjective symptoms? Do you think those are things clinical PTs could do in your environment? Oh, Absolutely. I think that, you know, these concepts specific to teaching self-efficacy are not foreign to us as physical therapists in terms of how we motivate people to do anything when we work with them. And I'm really excited just to have these points by Robert because I'm thinking right away how there's so many opportunities to do this even outside of your so-called structured PT session. You're walking to the elevator, you're in the bathroom with the patient, assisting them in the bathroom. And there's these opportunities to really do peer mentoring in my setting as well. But the MS peer visitors are not always matched appropriately in terms of us thinking about self-efficacy and exercise. It tends to be more of support for depression. Right. And 
things like that. But I think we would have to educate some clinicians about why these concepts are so important. And I think, as Rob mentioned, it's very important to acknowledge to them that I believe that you're fatigued. I don't blame you for feeling depressed and anxious about this. But look, we can make a change and make you feel even better. And by being more active, your symptoms may not be as severe. So I think it's very exciting that what I consider simple teaching techniques could really make a lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. And in your work teaching professional level physical therapy students, do you think these concepts are covered adequately in curriculums now? We teach it to our students within a health promotion project, which is a year-long study that these students do with various community groups. And part of that has to include measures of self-efficacy and health beliefs and things like that. But our students tell us when they go out on clinic, clinical instructors don't always know what that means and why is that so important. So I think I have to do a better job as an educator. It's not just teaching them, yes, you need to teach self-efficacy to patients with MS, but why is that so important and how can you bring along your colleagues and how can you teach someone else so they understand why this is so important? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think we do have to recognize is that a lot of times people with MS may not see their neurologist very regularly. They may not see a physical therapist unless they're having significant problems. So there's a large number of individuals out there who are not really receiving regular clinical care. And so what we've been doing, which is really exciting, is we've developed what are called behavioral interventions. And behavioral interventions are nothing more than trying to educate patients on theoretically related concepts about behavior change. And so trying to teach them about self-managing their behavior, so monitoring their current physical activity behavior, for example, using a pedometer and looking at what they do on a day-to-day basis and then trying to change it and trying to enact just simple things in everyday life to try to get more physical activity, such as when you're working every hour, go for a two-minute or a five-minute walk around your office or around your building. It doesn't have to be that long. If you do five-minute walk six times a day, you have 30 minutes of walking, and that pedometer will show you right away how much you've changed on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So we've developed these behavioral interventions, and the beauty of it is they're all delivered through the Internet. So we're taking what works in face-to-face interactions where someone has to come into our clinic or our research setting and we teach them these things one-on-one and we've transformed that into an internet website where they can go to it for research purposes at this point in time and learn about these things. And then what we've done is we've supplemented it with one-on-one video chats through the internet as well to where we can actually talk with them about what they're learning through the website, through videos and PDF files and texts and things like that. And they can talk with a real behavioral coach about changing these things. And we are starting to see these changes in physical activity where we can help people actually accumulate enough physical activity to meet public health guidelines for moderate to vigorous physical activity. It's all in the pilot and developmental stages right now. We've done phase one and phase two clinical trials on it. We're applying for a phase three trial right now, and if that works, then it'll all be about disseminating this widely for clinicians to give to their patients, for patients to find on their own, for everybody who has MS to use to be able to understand how to be physically active in the context of daily life. That's really exciting. 
And I think one of the neurologists that I really enjoyed working with, with one of my clients, he said, you know, by the time they get to me, they've seen their primary care, many other people trying to figure out what's going on. So these people are just wrought with anxiety to start with. He said, and I'm telling them that they probably or maybe definitely have MS. And he said, and then we often will say, well, here's a DVD or a CD on MS. Um, by the way, you're going to start medications next week. And he said, they get so much information in this one session. They just get told they have MS. Here's what you do. And good luck to you. And he said, I'm really trying to set up another appointment with people within that first three months after they've been diagnosed to discuss, okay, so you've absorbed some of this information I gave you. Now let's talk about how you're going to live with this. Yeah. And he gives some information on exercise and he said, I just need to do that next step to find out how to find people to help them in the community. So I was very excited that he thinks this is an exciting opportunity as well, but also recognizes you can only hear so much at a given time. Yeah. Yeah, and they are. People, when they're first being diagnosed, are just bombarded with information. Mm-hmm. The neurologist that you speak of, he's on to something critical. Right. And I think he's very good at giving hope to these clients. And I've been practicing for 26 years, and he pointed something out that I had failed to really recognize at first. And he said, if you look in my waiting room, not so long ago, 10, 20 years ago, you would see it filled with people in power wheelchairs, assistive devices, looking very disabled. He said, you saw the waiting room is filled today, not as much disability, not as many assistive devices. He said, we're much more aggressive with treating this. We need to manage this disease very aggressively. It never goes away. There's no such thing as you just treat exacerbations. And he said, exercise to me is the same treatment as important as your medication, if you're going to be on medication for MS. He said, I see exercise as a treatment of MS along with medication. And I thought that was just very unique. I haven't heard a neurologist say that before. You just can't ignore the data any longer relative to the benefits of exercise in persons with MS. In fact, one of my postdocs recently published a paper of a meta-analysis of exercise training and its effects on fatigue in persons with MS. And she was able to show that relative to control, because exercise hasn't been compared to anything else for managing fatigue, that you get about a half standard deviation reduction in fatigue. And it's actually large enough to reduce fatigue from clinically relevant to below a clinical threshold on common fatigue scales. Wow. So, you know, you can't ignore that literature when it's so strong and so profound. I really think that that's going to shape and change the way that neurologists work with their patients about exercise and physical activity. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for physical therapy. Absolutely. So I think at this point, we have covered a lot of really interesting topics. And I'd like to ask you each if you would like to make any summary comments or any comments on anything that we didn't get to. So Rob, how about if we start with you? So I think this has been really fun and exciting dialogue, and it's really left me thinking more about this area in our future research. And I think rather than focus on the research study under discussion right now, I think what it's left me with is thinking, how can I get more involved in clinical settings so that I can help frontline clinicians better understand how to motivate and encourage their patients with MS to be more physically active? So thank you for this great opportunity. And for making me think a little differently than I normally do. And I think, Kathy, that in terms of what this has really taught me, I've really enjoyed this discussion. And 
you know, it makes you say, my gosh, why don't we have more of these discussions in our profession where we really have to collaborate more with the researchers, the clinicians, the team that will be seeing these patients. And tomorrow I can go in and start applying these principles of how to teach self-efficacy to the clients as well as my students. And um, just really re-energized to maybe make a really effective change with these clients who I think have such potential, but often get pushed to the side in terms of what we can do for them and not just treat their disability by giving assistive devices. So I personally taken away from this, you know, we read about self-efficacy, but okay, now it's time for me to really start applying this to my clinical practice. And knowing that we've got researchers like Robert out there that can help me apply this clinically is just very exciting for me. So I just want to thank you both, Rob, not just for the contributions of this research from yourself and your colleagues, but also for the bullet points in terms of self-efficacy and some takeaway points that clinicians can use. That's terrifically helpful. I also really appreciate the work you're continuing to do and the idea of thinking about an internet-based education or dissemination system for clinicians as well as lay people as well as people with MS. I think that's just really where things need to go. And it's very exciting to me because potentially that sort of a model could help address some of the gaps in our healthcare system that we're all very aware of for this group of patients. And your clinical expertise has been great in this conversation. And your experience working with neurologists is, again, really very insightful. So to both of you, thanks. I continue to learn every time I do one of these. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.